one of the TV shows that uh, our family enjoys watching together is uh, America's Funniest Videos. Any fellow fans of that in here? It's okay if you are. I mean, we don't have to, we don't have to hide it. See, we're not alone. Um, there's nothing like some good slapstick humor, right? Pets doing funny things to, uh, uh, to get a family laughing together. Um, and, and if you're fans of that show and if you watch it with any, uh, any kind of regularity, you know that there's certain you know, bits that kind of make regular appearances. Um, uh, for instances, I don't know what that show did before doorbell cameras. I mean, I know it existed for like 25 years before that, but doorbell cameras catch some awesome falls. Right? And I'm sure not at the time, people probably are in a little bit of pain, but you know, icy front steps and you know, mailmen trying to deliver something with a dog chasing them. There's, just, there's some good clips from doorbell cameras. Um, trampolines, you might think that they are for kids to get out energy. I think trampolines were invented for this show because when you put trampolines together with people with poor judgment, you get some good videos, right? And, and I think uh, America's Funniest Videos thrives on those. Um, but there's, there's also this kind of recurring scenario that's come up uh, time and again where, where a parent will uh, secretly set up their phone and video record their unsuspecting child. So they'll have the camera, you know, the phone will be all set, it'll be recording. Then they'll bring uh, the child in, usually this child is age two or three or four, somewhere around there. And the parent will set this cookie or some kind of treat in front of the child and say, now I have to go do something. I have to leave the room. I'll be right back. But don't touch that cookie, okay? It needs to stay there until I get back. So, of course, the parent leaves, and the phone is still there recording this whole thing. And <laughs> you could just see the internal struggle taking place on the child's face, right? This cookie staring up at them. Mom or dad has left the room. Sometimes the lengths to which the child will go to keep from eating that cookie is really quite humorous, the things that they will do. Other times they give in. The cookie wins, right? And they eat the cookie, and then the parent comes back into the room, and then the fanciful story that gets made up about what happens to that cookie is almost equally as humorous. Um, again, you know, this, it's this created for America's Funniest Videos kind of scenario, but but as I, you know, as I was thinking about that, those, those videos specifically, I think they really encapsulate well the struggle that both children and adults have when it comes to temptation. Because that's what those videos are all about, right? The temptation to eat this cookie when, when uh, they were told not to. If temptation wasn't a real thing, then those videos would not be funny whatsoever. Because the child would just sit there, nothing would happen, and the parent would come back and things would be just like they left them. But temptation is a real thing, and, and it's where the humor in those videos comes from. And if temptation wasn't a real thing, then you and I wouldn't feel such a strong pull toward things that are opposed to God's character, uh, which we talked about last week, we, we defined as sin, right? But temptation is a real thing. It very much is a real thing. And so the struggle with temptation is, um, is equally as real. The, that temptation, uh, it, it's common to all humans. All humans throughout history 
But it doesn't mean that because temptation is pervasive, then we just give in to it. And we just say, well, it's part of our existence. There's nothing we can do. Next topic. Um, it's, it's so important, I think, that we discern what lies at the root of temptation so that when it does come, then we're able to, to recognize it, but then also seek the strength needed to endure through it, which I'll spoil the ending a little bit this morning and say we can endure through temptation. So, so have, you ever been, have you ever been going throughout your day, you're just minding your own business, go, going through your day, when all of a sudden temptation towards sin just hits you? Seemingly out of nowhere. I mean, you're, you're minding your own business, doing your thing, and, and just, it shows up right then. It's just there. You, maybe you even asked yourself, where did that come from? What is going on? Like, uh, it's not even like something around you prompted it. It's just there it was. Almost for no explicable reason, the temptation was just there. It appeared. And I, I, I kind of wonder if, if maybe one of the, the biblical writers was was asking himself that kind of question, or, or maybe the believers around him were, were asking that question. But uh, James, in his letter to the Jewish believers scattered around the world, he, he addressed that question. So, so I'd encourage you to turn with me to James chapter 1. And we're going to start here before we go back to Genesis, which is what's been tying this whole sermon series together. But look with me at James chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 12. James writes and says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives, uh, brings forth death. Now, 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 before we really dive into the meat of what James is saying there, I think we do need to do a little bit of a, a word study. There's, there's the Greek word being used here called uh, pyrazo. Greek word pyrazo, and it's a word that, that most literally means to put to the test. Put to the test. What's interesting is the word can be used in either a positive or a negative sense. Same word, but, but the context informs how you understand the word. So, so, for example, in the positive sense, pyrazo talks about testing that is done to determine the worth or the value, or the makeup of something. The, the, the goal is to, to see what is there. In a negative sense, the word pyrazo, the testing is done in order to get something to fail, hoping that it will fail. And this word can mean either one, but it depends on, on the context of what's being talked about. So, and the Bible uses that word in both senses, positive and negative. What's good for us is, is quite often when translating pirazzo into English, we'll know which sense is being used because we use two different words. So when, when it's used in the positive sense in English, it's usually translated as test or trial. And I know test, trial, that doesn't sound 
positive. We don't think of that in a kind of a positive way, but, but we're talking about the positive sense of the word, a test or a trial that seeks to determine the value of something or seeks to determine perseverance. In a negative sense, when pirazzo is used and translated into English, that's where we get temptation. And so, in other words, a trial, a test is meant to prove value. Temptation is meant to destroy value. That's really the essence of the difference within that Greek word. I think, I think that differentiation is seen perfectly in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. So in chapter 2, when God speaks to Adam, verses 16 and 17, and he talks about the, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he tells Adam not to eat from that tree, I, I would consider that the positive form of pirazzo. That's a test. That's God desiring that Adam prove himself through his obedience to God's word. When Satan speaks to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of that chapter, about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, might consider that the negative form. That's the temptation. That is, that is Satan desiring that Eve be destroyed through her disobedience. And you can really see the, the, the kind of two different forms of that there. And so when we're told directly in James chapter 1, we're told that God will never tempt us to sin. In other words, he will never pirazzo in the negative sense where he desires us to succumb to sin. He desires us to be destroyed by it. That's why James says God tempts no one. That is not God's desire for us. Now, there are times when God tests his people. If we talk about the positive sense of that word, there are times where God tests his people to prove or to show what is within them. And we see that really all throughout scripture. And, and I can just highlight a few for us. In Genesis chapter 22, when, when we're told that God tested Abraham in asking him to offer his son Isaac on the altar, that, that's testing there in the positive sense. Exodus 16, we're, we're told that it, the way in which manna fell from heaven, the fact that the people could go out and get enough for one day, and that on the day before the Sabbath they could go out and get enough for two days, that that was all done, that, that was a way for God to test his people to show whether or not they would follow his laws, whether or not they would be obedient to him. Um, 2 Chronicles 32, we're told that, that envoys came from Babylon to King Hezekiah and that God allowed that as a test to show what was in King Hezekiah's heart. And I'd say, I would say this is why James can write earlier in uh, James chapter 1 that we, could, we should consider it joy when we face trials of many kinds. Th those are tests meant to show or even produce more faith and more perseverance. So, so in short, trials, tests, they can show our faith, they can show our perseverance, they can even produce faith, grow faith, grow perseverance through God's work in our lives in the midst of those trials. The temptations, the other side of that, that, that that's different. Temptations, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that, that's one of Satan's tactics, which he, which he uses to seek to destroy us. And so temptations are different. And, and, and while temptation is undoubtedly a direct tactic of Satan, James also talks about how, how temptation arises due to our desires and, and our corrupt nature underneath our desires. 
So, so when James writes in, in uh, 1.14 that, that we're tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires, this is what he's talking about. It's not to reject the work of Satan himself, but it does show the role that our own desires play in the process, especially when our desires are influenced by our corrupt nature. So uh, the picture that James is using there really is kind of fascinating. He's talking about luring and, and enticing, and he's actually, he's making a connection to fishing, believe it or not. Now, now the, the NIV translation that, that I memorized back in Bible quizzing would, would ha it translated it dragged away and enticed. Each one is tempted when by, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. And that's a very, that's a correct way to translate it, but it loses that fishing picture, which the ESV draws out lured and enticed. Because wh what do fishermen use when they, what's on the end of the line when they cast it out into the water? What's it called? Fishing lure, right? Lure. It's called that for a reason. Those things are meant to lure a fish away from safety and entice them to grab onto the bait that's got the hook hidden inside. And so that's what James is drawing on here. It's what temptation seeks to do to us, to lure us away and, and entice us. Our, our human desires, which are meant to be positive things that would draw us closer to God, once those desires are under the influence of our corrupted nature, they can actually lead us away from God. And so uh, the things that were given to us for our good can be hijacked by our corrupt nature. They can be used as tools in our rebellion. And, and look with me at Genesis chapter 3. This really is fascinating. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Uh, Satan and Eve have just had the conversation where Satan's tempting Eve. He's getting her to question God's words. And before Eve acts, before she eats the fruit, we're basically told the conversation that's going on in her head. Look at verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And, and so in that, in that short verse there, we're, we're told that Eve rationalized her decision in three different ways. It was good for food, it was a delight to her eyes, and it promised wisdom. Those are the three things highlighted. Good for food, delight to the eyes, promised wisdom. Now, none of those three desires are inherently evil. Hunger is not an evil desire. Uh, beauty is not an evil desire. Wisdom is most certainly not an evil desire. I, I would say that those desires all existed within Eve prior to her sinning, prior to the fall. So the problem was not that she had those desires. The problem was that she sought to meet those desires in a way that was contrary to God's commands, God's character, as, as we talked about last week. She sought to meet those desires separate from God himself. And, and, and again, another thing I find fascinating in all of this is that the Apostle John picks up on this, and, and he connects in his uh, epistle, 1 John, he connects it right back to what's going on with Eve there. And so what John does is he spells out for us 
three different categories or three different areas in which our corrupt nature leads us away from God. Three different areas in which temptation takes place. And so, so as I'm reading these, uh, these verses from 1 John chapter 2, see if what Eve experienced in the garden doesn't connect and fit perfectly within these categories that John's writing about. So 1 John 2 verse 15 says this, He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of God is not in him. And then he gives the three categories. He says, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So he lists those three, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. He says those are the three areas in which our corrupt nature hijacks our desires and, and leads us away from God. And, and what I want to do this morning is, is take some time to examine each one of those three that John writes about, those three that we see Eve wrestling with in the garden. And so the first one is the desires of the flesh. Desires of the flesh. I, I, I I would say that those are the things which come from the urges and the yearnings within us. And again, they're not necessarily evil, but they're taken over, they're hijacked by our corrupt nature. And so uh, what I thought I would do this morning is, is maybe help us visualize these three different things and bring some drama into the sermon. So I've got three items hidden under the sheet here. But the first one I want to use for desires of the flesh is, is an apple, okay? And, and hopefully these, these three objects can maybe help us recall this in the future and, and more quickly identify things that are going on. But uh, uh, I chose an apple for two reasons. First, I, I think it doesn't say that Eve ate an apple. That's usually the fruit that's talked about. But uh, this fruit, it connects back to Eden, to what's taking place in Genesis 3. But second, I, th I think the hunger for food, and maybe some of you are, eyes are getting a little wider as I hold this up and we get closer to lunch, but the hunger for food, I think, in, in general, is one of the clearer examples of this category, the desires of the flesh. We easily recognize that our hunger for food is a good thing, right? I, I mean, if, if we're honest, we probably all know someone, maybe we are this person, that if our body didn't tell us we were hungry, we'd probably forget to eat for days at a time, right? Maybe we know somebody like that. Maybe that's us. Hunger is a good thing. Our desire for food is a good desire. It, it, it reminds us to take in the nutrition that our physical bodies need to survive. God has created us to function in that way. However, our corrupt nature can take that desire for food and hijack it and, and, and use it to tempt us. So in Eve's case... Satan tempted her to fulfill her good desire for food in a way which violated God's commands and God's character. So you see, I mean, do we see what's taking place there? I mean, God said, eat from the garden. Eat from any tree in the garden. This desire for food that I'm giving you, fulfill it in this way. Just don't eat from the one tree. And Satan says, well, I'm going I'm to take that desire. I'm going to use it to tempt Eve. Uh, gluttony would be another example of this. Gluttony is a good desire for food hijacked. 
drunkenness is another example. Desire for food being hijacked or desire for drink being hijacked. But, but it's not just food. I mean, I, I chose a, an apple to kind of um, show this category, but it's not just food. There's many, many good God-given desires within us that can fall into this category, that can be hijacked. So, so for example, uh, sexual immorality. That is a desire for intimacy, which is a good God-given desire being hijacked. Uh, adultery, same thing, desire for intimacy being hijacked by our corrupt nature. Stealing, uh, it's often a desire for pleasure being hijacked. Uh, pornography use, a desire for pleasure being hijacked. Uh, revenge, I would say that's our good desire for justice being hijacked. Uh, dissension with others can be a desire for truth being hijacked. Uh, oppression can be a desire for ruling, something we're commanded to do at the beginning of Genesis being hijacked. I mean, uh, th there's so many different places where we can see this playing out. Now, I, I can't stand here and say that every single desire that we have in our flesh is at its root a good desire. I can't quite say that. I think, I think we can become so hardened to God or so hardened in certain areas, at least, that we begin to desire things that truly are evil at their root. I, I think that can happen. And at that point, it's not that our desires are being hijacked. It, it's that those desires themselves are corrupt. But I think most often, most often, the desires of the flesh that John talks about are those good God-given desires within us being taken over by our corrupt nature. And so when that's happening, I think we can ask ourselves the question, what good desire is at the root of this? When I'm facing temptation of some kind, is there a good desire that, that lies beneath all of this that's being hijacked within me? And then if so, how can that good desire be met in a God-honoring way instead of in the way that I'm being tempted? And I know that's a lot easier to, to talk about and, you know, not in the, when desire's hitting you in the face, right? But, but I think if we can slow down and do that, we can recognize what's taking place within us. I mean, just imagine Eve. If Eve had stopped and asked herself that question, you know, what, what might have, how might it have, how might it have turned out differently, right? If she had sought to find fulfillment for her desire for food, in any of the other trees that God had already given to her, how might things have turned out differently? But instead, Satan functioning as her corrupt nature, tempting her, he hijacked that good desire and he used it to lead her away from God. So that's the first one, the, the desires of the flesh. Let's move on. Uh, let's talk about the desires of the eyes. So the desires of the flesh, those are the things that originate often within us, these internal, many times good-given, good God-given desires that we have. The desires of the eyes originate more with our eyes, right? Things that we see outside of ourselves. So maybe the desires of the flesh are more inward. Desires of the eyes are something we see outside of us. Um, things that we see and begin to want, or things that we see and begin to overly value or improperly value. Now, there's overlap. I, I think there's definite overlap between desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes. 
you know, it can be the eyes that awaken the internal desire within us at times. So, so it's not that, you know, every temptation falls into just one of these categories. There, there's, there could be overlap there. But the desires of the eyes, I, I, think, I think when Peter writes in 2 Peter 2, uh, he, he's talking about this. He, he writes, he says, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. So for the people that, that Peter's writing about, he's saying that what they looked at with their eyes awakened this internal desire for pleasure and intimacy, and, and then their corrupt nature led them into adultery. Uh, but, it, but it started with the eyes, right? They have eyes full of adultery. I, I, King David is maybe the prime example of this, right? He's up on the top of his palace, and his eyes see Bathsheba. And it's from there then that the temptation begins and ultimately he succumbs to that. It went down from there, but it started, started with his eyes. But it, but it, doesn't, and it doesn't have to just be people that, that catch our eyes. It, it can be objects as well. It might be the neighbor's house or the neighbor's car in the driveway. When, when we dwell upon those over and over with our eyes, our, our corrupt nature can take those regular old objects and turn them into objects of covetousness or, or idols that we seek to worship. Uh, it could be an outfit at the department store, right? We can dwell upon it over and over with our eyes and our corrupt nature can take those clothes, regular old object, and, and turn them into a measure of our value or something like that. And it's quite often physical, what our physical eyes rest on, but, but it can be our mind's eye as well. It might just be things that we're thinking about all the time that we are looking at in our mind that can fall into this category also. Um, when Jesus says in uh, the Sermon on the Mount that the eye is the lamp of the body, I think he's pointing towards this principle. The eye is the lamp of the body. Our eyes can look upon things and then coupled with our corrupt nature can turn us away from God. So uh, this object may not be a, a huge surprise to you, but I figured a pair of glasses would be a good, a good image for this one, right? The things, that, the things that we look upon matter, okay? And hopefully I don't pass out from this because I have contact and glasses on now, which you can kind of see what's going on. But now the good news is that our, our, our eyes can be a powerful tool for our spiritual growth. They really can be, and I think that truth is captured in Hebrews 12 when we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, right? The author, the perfecter of our faith. The more we look toward Jesus, the, the, the more we'll find ourselves drawn toward him. But conversely, the more we fill our eyes with the things that are opposed to God, the more we're going to find ourselves tempted by sin and, and venturing into sin. And, and I think this was true for Eve. Remember, she saw that the fruit was good for food, but she also saw that it was pleasing to the eyes, right? So she, she stared at the fruit of the tree of knowledge of, of good and evil long enough that it became a delight to her eyes. Had she had she turned around and walked to another spot in the garden and sat down there to think about Satan's proposition. Like, I kind of wonder, again, how would things have turned out 
any differently there if her eyes were not fixated on this fruit in front of her. So we've got the desires of the flesh. We've got the desires of the eyes. The final category that John mentions is the pride of life. Pride of life. I'd say this refers to the prideful exaltation of ourselves. So, so while, the, while the desires of the eyes really is about the object set before our eyes, the pride of life is, is about what comes as the result of getting that object. So, so in other words, it, it's not about the fancy car itself. It's about the looks that I'm going to get when I'm driving the car. You see the difference there? Like the pride of the eyes can, can, can hone in on the object, the, uh, or the, the desires of the eyes. The, the pride of life is, is about me. So it's not about the car. It's not about the house itself. It's about what my neighbors are going to think about me as I'm walking into the house. It's not about the job itself. It's about the power I can have because I hold that position in my job. The pride of life. It's an attitude that that seeks to set oneself up in glory. It's an attitude that seeks to promote one's self. And so the, the uh, object for this last one is a trophy here. Now, disclaimer, th this is the softball trophy that our team won a couple weeks ago. But I have witnesses, Matt Keen, Dave Steffen can, can vouch for me. Before we won this, I said, you know, you guys need to know I'm planning to use a trophy coming up in a sermon. So if by chance we come away with one, this is not me trying to get pats on the back. I, we, I needed a trophy and God provided it. So, <laughs> you know, okay. <laughs> but they'll vouch for me. So, uh, but, but I, think, I think a trophy is a good, good picture of this, right? That the corrupt nature within us takes situations and opportunities and makes them all about receiving glory ourselves rather than giving God glory. So temptation comes when our corrupt nature leads us to exalt ourselves rather than exalting God. And so for Eve, the pride of life was the, the supposed opportunity to be wise. And it's really fascinating how this all works. You know, the, the, and James writes in chapter one about wisdom and God. I mean, with Eve, the God of all wisdom was willing to provide her with the wisdom that she needed had she just asked him for it. But the fruit of the tree allowed her, she thought it would allow her, to grasp for that wisdom under her own strength and then take credit for, for it herself. And, and notice the wording, uh, if you're still in Genesis chapter 3. I had never caught this before, but, but it really jumped out at me this time. The wording in Genesis 3, 6. Okay, so she saw that the, uh, the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Catch the wording. It wasn't about the wisdom. It was about her. It was about her being wise. And, and there's a difference there. Eve didn't desire wisdom through which she could honor God. She desired the position, the exalted position of being wise. You catch that? I think this is what John's picking up on when he's writing his epistle, right? The pride of life. It wasn't about Eve being wise to honor God. It was about her being wise to 
be wise. The end goal wasn't the wisdom, the end goal was her position as a wise person. She desired to be wise to bring honor to herself. I mean, as James says, we're tempted when our desires, our corrupted desires, which John writes about, lure and entice us. And, and, and we know the progression from there that James writes about. We've already talked about uh, in this sermon series the other steps on this path. Desire gives birth to sin, and then sin brings forth death. We're, we're acquainted with those other two, as we've already talked about. Now, now, based on what we've talked about this morning, when we talk about temptation and, and our desires being hijacked by our corrupt nature, when we think about our own personal experiences with temptation, it might all seem like a lost cause, right? It might seem like a lost cause. It might seem like we are doomed to succumb to temptation. What, what James writes in, in chapter 1 Verse 12 might seem like a pipe dream when he says, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who remains steadfast under trial. It might seem like, how in the world, with all this temptation facing us, how can that even be possible? But Paul, I think, would, would beg to differ with any discouragement that we might feel in that area. We might start to think about it in that way. So Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, he was, he was comparing their own corrupt desires with those of the Israelites whom God brought out of Egypt. And this is what Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's verse 13. I'm sure you've heard this many times before. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, we've already said God does not tempt us. We've established that fact. However, this does not mean that God always protects us from ever facing temptation. Right? He, he didn't stop the serpent from conversing with Eve in the garden. He, he didn't stop David from going up on the roof, right? He didn't just make it rain on the palace suddenly so that David wouldn't want to be up there. Um, he didn't stop his own son, as we read uh, earlier in Matthew 4. He didn't stop Jesus from entering the wilderness and experiencing temptation from Satan. He doesn't stop all the temptation in our lives. He does, however, as Paul writes, provide all that we need in the face of that temptation. He provides what we need. The same promise that he made to the church in Corinth holds true for us today as well. He's faithful. He will never let us be tempted beyond our ability to be steadfast through it. He will provide the way through temptation so that we can endure. And I think some of that way is, is his word like we're doing this morning, talking about temptation. Where does it come from? I, you know, how is it utilized by Satan? I think that's one of the ways that he provides a way out is as we, as we learn more about what temptation is and, and as we rely upon him for the strength and the wisdom that we need. Um, I, man, I, I look forward to the day when, when I get a stand on the new earth and temptation is a thing of the past, never to be worried about 
ever again. I mean, how awesome is that going to be when we don't ever have to face temptation anymore? I don't know if I can fully grasp that kind of a reality in the here and now, <laughs> one that is free completely from temptation. But I, I can grasp it enough to know that I look forward to it, that that will be quite a good day. But until that day, until that day, as we walk through life on this corrupted earth, and as we face temptations brought about by our own corrupted nature, hijacking our desires, we can look to our faithful God, and we can trust him to provide all that we need in the face of daily temptation. It, it is possible to have that cookie staring at us in the face and let it sit there. It is possible. And there's forgiveness when we don't, and God is a God of forgiveness, and, and we rejoice in that. But he provides what is needed in the face of not just a cookie, <laughs> but real, difficult temptations that come our way. We can trust him in that. So would you stand with me? Let's, let's come to God. Let's thank God for how he works. And let's worship him as a result of it as well. God, first off, we, we give you praise this morning just for these good desires that you've given to us. You've created us with these desires, and we thank you for that. You know what you're doing. But God, within that, we know that in this fallen world, as people with a corrupt nature, that uh, those things can be hijacked, and they are hijacked. And, and we pray for, for what we need in the face of that. You've promised to provide what we need, God, would you remind us to seek that in you? Would you give us wisdom when we're facing temptations of different kinds? God, we, we want to bring honor to you. We want to worship you not just through our words, but through our actions, how we go through life. We, we want to point to you. We want to live as, as people of your kingdom. So would you give us what we need for that? And God, would you, would you help us to, uh, to support and encourage one another in that? Uh, that's one of the roles of, of church bodies, is to walk together in these areas. God, we give you praise. We give you praise that there's always a way out. There's always a way to endure. Would you lead us in that? And God, we thank you for forgiveness. We can point to plenty of places we've failed in the past. We'll fail again in the future. We praise you that even when, even when those desires led by our corrupt nature lead us away from you, that you're there with open arms, welcoming us back if we will turn back to you. We thank you for that. God, we give you praise this morning. We give you honor. We worship you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.